President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, go to He will fall in fire. Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting. And personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm your host, Luke Woodruff. The content presented in this series is edited from the audio and video recordings found in the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. Today's episode, Technology Innovation. From the early days of building head-ends from scratch and keeping TV signals up in blizzard conditions, to more recent innovations that changed our global society, Cable's technologies have always been among the most innovative and most resourceful individuals you'll find anywhere. We start with Lewis Williamson, retired senior fellow engineer at Time Warner Cable. Williamson recounts his groundbreaking work on the company's full-service network, which developed two-way interactive applications and video on demand and was the first deployed in Orlando, Florida in 1994. The full-service network was the earliest model for much of the features and capabilities of the broadband communications and entertainment offerings we enjoy today. And now, technology innovations. Most of us people in cable, in fact, I've yet to meet one person in cable who says that they woke up one day and said, I know, I want to be in the cable industry. So connect the dots from getting out of Virginia Tech, and you came out here for Martin Marietta, Yeah. and then some to tell that story. Like those um, well, out of school, I was a recruited uh, out here by Martin Marietta Aerospace. So I worked in aerospace for about three years. And you worked on like uh, war stuff, right? I did electronic warfare. Uh, what does that mean? Well, can, are you not allowed to talk about it? Some of it I'm not allowed to talk <laughs> Still. about, but I'm sure it's all. <laughs> you know, it was a long time ago. But, you know, electronic warfare is, is uh, and the things I did were like electronic countermeasures. Uh, you know, when you're trying to, you know, jam other people with electronic counter-countermeasures when you're trying to un- jam the people who are jamming you. So I did stuff like that. Uh, you know, really, it's, you know, in warfare, people are trying to communicate and uh, I, you know, worked on things, you know, to try to keep communication going for us and to make it not work for other people. Yeah. Is that fun? Yeah, it was fun. I, I enjoyed uh, you know my time in aerospace, um, uh, and <clears throat> and I kind of you know fell into cable by you know a little bit by accident. Uh, you know during that time in the defense industry, uh, or maybe it was just Martin Marietta. You know when you were weren't working on a project, charging to some real project. You know you pretty much got terminated because mm. you were overhead. <laughs> And I was running out of projects and stuff like that. So, you know, young in my life and, you know, needed a paycheck. So it made me start thinking about, you know, what's the next thing? Because, you know, again, I was young at that point and you never think you're gonna be at one place more than uh, a few years. So it was, it was, I was feeling that itch. So a uh, uh, guy I knew at, <clears throat> Martin Marietta had actually came over to American Television and Communications. ATC. At ATC, yeah. And he told me about an opportunity there, and I I applied. And uh, What was it? What was the opportunity? 
Uh, I was a member of the technical staff. It was my first, uh, uh, you know, opportunity. But uh, at the time, uh, the cable industry, or at least ATC, was, uh, you know, they were trying to build this off-premise converter. We were, you know, we had started, you know, the industry had started putting, you know, converters in the homes, and you know, there was, you know, they were losing them. So, you know, we had this brilliant idea. We would put the converters out and on the pole and just a little small cheap control box in the house and um, and that was gonna you know be the solution to it so I was recruited to work on that project and, and probably more specifically you know, what got me interested in it was I, I was building the control modem uh, that talked to that device that controlled it so it was like a 256k QPSK modem you know which was at the time super, it was super fast, fast. And, 256k. Yeah. And as I, you know, really started, you know, uh, learning about the opportunity, I, you know, it's like cable, you know, and and cable was pretty young at that point, especially in the cities. I had never had cable, um, so didn't yeah, know a lot like about 80, it. Yeah, it was, it was 83. So what was the bandwidth? Like uh, they were just 80. building around 450 megahertz, and again, you go look at it. I'm the communication guy. It's like, guys, these guys have 450 megahertz pass in every home, and they're going to put this 256, you know, K modem, you know, to these houses. And I mean, over that's, at that point, people were still. 56K, not 256. Yeah, it's 256. Oh, 256. It's 256 kilobit uh, control modem and 64K. Uh, so you saw that as, that as huge. Yeah, it was a big, yeah. big. I, was, I thought it was going to be really great to do that you know I, I later found out that that was shared among you know like you know 10 to 50 10 to twenty thousand homes passed so it wasn't quite as big <laughs> right, right. Uh, as i found out but but it did start i you know I, I i really was intrigued about the possibilities of cable even back then you know thinking about that kind of capacity and what you know what was possible with it and, and at the time they were just you know, pretty much just doing, uh, you know, television. We weren't doing any of the other things. Yeah, right, and, it wasn't. And, and the cities were getting built. I mean, I lived in Denver at the time, and Denver was just starting to get built. So cable was, you know, still very fresh to to me. So, so I, yeah, I, I decided I'd try it out. Uh, and, you, you know, still are. And 32 years later, right. I just finished trying it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, so that kind of leads into the next, really, the, the you have so many big parts of your career, but the really big one was when fiber came in. So at that time, right. everything was all coax, tree and branch, yep. lots and lots of amplifiers. That's and correct. so what was what prompted the idea of, I, I want to start the fiber discussion about, like, what was the state of the state of fiber at the time? It was just a telco thing for long haul, right? Yeah, you know, pretty much fiber at the time was, uh, I mean, it wasn't relatively new, but it was really, like I said, it was used for long haul, uh, you know, communications, you know, Small uh, almost, you know, exclusively digital uh, modulation on it. Um, and uh, as we started looking at expanding our plants, uh, you know, because if you, you know, can take a little bit of step back at the time, you know, we were building 450 megahertz systems at the time, and everybody wanted to go to 550 or beyond. Right. Um, but the, the plants also expanded, so it was not uncommon for you to have a, a 400 uh, an, in a 
to have a 40 amp cascade of amplifiers. Which makes the picture at the end kind of Which makes it really bad. And and also, you know, people hear 40 amplifiers is, you know, the noise gets worse, you know, the distortions get worse. The signal gets Um, boosted, as does the noise. Right. But there are also, you know, lots of other problems with it, too, is the, uh, as, you know, if you were last person at the end of the cascade, any one of those failure points, your signal was always out. Uh, and as we tried to expand capacity, it was just tougher and tougher to keep and maintain those. So everybody started thinking about how do you break these systems apart? And it was just unaffordable. You know, you couldn't afford to build hubs. There was microwave, uh, you know, amplitude modulated microwave links. Um, or things like that that people tried to break these cascades apart as we built these systems out. But all of those, again, they were, you know, unreliable microwave. You get Expensive. a rainstorm and it's, you know, you lose signals then. So, you know, we started looking for ways and, uh, you know, we knew telcos were using fiber. You know, we were trying to figure out how could we use it, uh, but we couldn't afford to do digital and then have, you know, convert all that back at each one of these locations. So, you know, a couple guys, uh, Don Gall and Dave Pangris, who were at Kansas City. Uh, You know, Dave Pangris had recently moved to corporate and uh, was looking for ways to try to start building, uh, you know, our next plants. And uh, the question of fiber optics came up and could we use it? And uh, I was the, um, you know, the kid. Well, uh, more importantly, I was the guy who had, in, in Virginia Tech, I had taken a couple classes on fiber optics. So as people start talking about it, I, you know, I knew enough, you know, buzzwords to sound like an expert. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they gave me the task of going out looking at, you know, what would it take, you know, and was it, is it possible to, you know, put our signals over, you know, fiber and how could we use it? Uh, so that's what led up to all of the experimentation on, on so then, fiber and lasers. And, and so then, yeah, so you started talking to yeah. the laser guys, right? At Ortel? Yeah, Was it I Ortel? started. Well, I talked to a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, you know, some of the current guys at Cattell and Synchronous were building, they were building FM links that we used, uh, you know, from hub to hub, but those were pretty expensive and wouldn't do the job. and. But those guys knew a little bit about lasers and, uh, you know, AT&T, you know, started talking to, you know, the folks at Bell Labs and, uh, you know, Ortel, who became one of our, you know, big laser vendors uh, uh, about what was possible. And at first people were, you know, pretty skeptical of the idea. Very skeptical. I remember this. But they also, you know, Curious. Yeah, they were they were curious because, you know, lasers are you know pretty linear. It's just could you take all of those channels we you know were carrying and put Which them is on how a many laser? In like uh, a four fifty megahertz, it was uh, like sixty channels, 60. but we were trying to get up to about eighty channels at the time. So it was like you know, is this possible? Can you get a good enough laser to do it? And and if you just go like you know, grab generic lasers off the shelf and go do it. Yeah, most of them don't work very well. I mean, you, you get pictures, but they're, they're worse than the ones we were carrying. So uh, so that didn't work. Uh, so was it like, did you have, I just wanted like, 
paint a picture of mm-hmm. your your bench. Did you mm. just have, because you've told me before, and it's one of my many favorite Lewis stories. Is, well, how did you do it? I just kept turning it up and turning it up. Until well, I did kind of turn up the car. <laughs> <laughs> but tell, like, how did, what, did, what was the lay of the, what did it look like? But the, the lay of the land was, I mean, we were, tr- we were still trying to figure it out. And, yeah. and um, you know, so I had the luxury of being able to go try different, you know, things to go figure it out because, you know, when you first start playing with lasers, yeah, you say, okay, this is really not that good, even if you crank the power up. But uh, I also start figuring out things like, you know, well, you know, part of the problem is, you know, reflections, which is, you know, a microwave phenomenal too. So, you know, if I fuse to the link, fusion splice the whole link together, you know, it actually got quieter. So, you know, I started, you know, experimenting with fusion splicers and, uh, you know, to keep the reflections down, uh, you know, which led to, you know, hey, you know, if we get optical isolators, that helps too. Uh, and as we would, you know, get different lasers from different, you know, people, we, we did find some that work better than others. And, uh, you know, as, an, as I would turn the power up on them, uh, it made me also start playing with the, you know, the thermoelectric cooler to cool them down. Uh, and I found there is, as you turn the temperature of the lasers at those time, the Fabry Perot's, mm-hmm. they actually change frequencies and uh, or wavelengths uh, is what they did. And when you they would find hot? these. Hmm? When they got hot, they changed wavelengths. As, as you change temperature of them, they okay. actually changed their wavelengths. Uh, right. You know, uh, but as you did that, I would find these sweet spots in. You know, you know, some of the lasers were made them work better. So, um, you know, but long story short, all of this led to where I could do 60 channels over a 10 kilometer link. Uh, and as we started bringing, you know, the uh, laser vendors in and the people who were, you know, really built lasers, uh, you know, they became intrigued because they, they start seeing that yeah, it is possible is, you know, how would they, how could they take what I was doing and go back to their, you know, laboratories and build better lasers and customize them for things that we wanted to do. So, you know, that's really, it was that. Um, but did, was there a moment in time where you went, oh, this is it, 60 channels over whatever it was, 1310 or was it yeah, like that? It was 1310, yeah, yeah. 13, 1310 nanometers. But yeah, there was, uh, you know, I found a few lasers where I was able to go demonstrate 60 channels over you know, 10 kilometer lengths, you know, about six did miles. You, did you ago. actually blow up lasers? Like, a few dead ones so like in my happened? collection. Do they, do they make a sound? Do they make a smell when you blow no, them up? No, they, they, don't, just, they don't blow up like that. <laughs> They're not like capacitors. You okay. just, they just, they stop just pretty working. much stop working. Okay. You, How uh, many did you blow up before you found the right? Before you well, found right, the, Actually, I didn't blow up many, by the way. I, I, I went through a, you know, lots of them that, that weren't that good. Uh, but most of them, I, you know, they don't blow up. I mean, you, you just, they don't work very well and you just move on. Uh, but through that experimentation and proving that we could do it, uh, we, re- we got the industry, you know, the optical industry interested in it. And, um, and then you've got the smart people like Ortel who just built, you know, real high linear lasers. You know, folks like that start looking at it and what would it take? And, and they, you know, uh, you know, really start delivering on the products. But even then, you know, people were, at that point would say, 
you know, they had to like hand pick them, you know, they would just test them to see which ones work. It wasn't like every laser worked at the time. Right. It was a few years before those things really stabilized and, and the industry was taken off. And so, it, and in that, I think that's the time frame right around when I met you. It was like, there was the team of people at Time Warner Cable, what was it, it was ATC then. It was ATC. That were working on video over fiber. Right. And Jim Chittix, I don't want to say this in, in an unkind way, but people think, oh, that was Jim Chittix, but actually Lewis did a lot of the work. So during that period, you two both hit the road and you did all this public speaking about yeah. about your work. And right. I found out later it was because you kind of had to do that for patent purposes, right? Yeah, we did. A, we, we were doing it for a couple of reasons. Uh, I mean, uh, the primary reason was we were trying to evangelize it to right, get more right. and more people in. So the more people would buy it, so the cost would come. That's out. right, and if and uh, as people, you know, again, other uh, manufacturers heard about it of, of optical products. You know, it got that, you know, uh, got their interests. Uh, so that was a primary reason. But it also, also at that time, we didn't do patents. We didn't have the patent office. So what we, you know, we, we just didn't have our patent attorneys. So it was a patent office. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> um, but we published is what we were trying right. to do, yeah. you know, because you put it out in the public domain and you still establish, uh, you know, uh, that is out there. Thing. So. So that was our philosophy back at the time. Instead of patent, we did a lot of publishing, but but the primary reason was to evangelize it and get more and more people interested in it, because you know at that time by then we we actually believed, uh, and 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 we were trying to get more people interested to drive the costs down because initially they were still expensive. You know we just didn't start off and start doing HFC. The first uh, you know. Um, way we used it uh, was what we call fiber backbone. Right. Uh, we still and, call it that. Yeah, yeah. Some people still call it that. And the the first commercial application we actually put in, uh, I was actually down in Orlando testing one of my, you know, uh, lasers that worked pretty well uh, between two hubs that were AM microwaves at the time. Uh, but they also had fiber through it for some commercial reasons, so it was a good place to go test. Uh, so I took the link down and over. How long was the link? Um, I said I don't remember how long it was. It, it was yeah, you know, probably ten miles or so uh, is how would be my guess, but I don't remember the exact link. Um, but I took it down and I did test over, you know, a series of days, and uh, you know, at the end I was getting ready to pack it up and bring it home and. Uh, the guy I was working with, you know, technician down there, Kerry Fouts, um, he wouldn't let me take it out because his boss, John Walsh, who was the VP okay. engineering, yeah. told him it was working so much better than a microwave. They were like, you can't take this leave out. Leave your gear. You have to leave it here. And I was <laughs> like, well, it's like not my gear. I borrowed it from a vendor. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that was Did the first commercial. It? I had no choice. They yeah. wouldn't let me in the hub to get it out. Uh, uh, and it and it stayed there for years, and uh, you know they eventually they changed it because, like I said, it was it was a lab rig. It wasn't really uh, hard or anything else. As a matter of fact, the detector, the diode receiver, actually had it reverse biased by a nine volt battery just for low noise because yeah. you know it was it was just Simpler how it worked. Yeah. But uh, so it, that was kind of the setup. It wasn't meant to leave there, but it worked so much better than a microwave and. 
more importantly, when the rainstorms come every afternoon in Florida, and it didn't fade. So, right. so it stayed there, and they, you know, finally they put in a good receiver on it and stuff. But yeah, that link was uh, the first commercial deployment, and, and that's how we use it. We use it for, you know, getting rid of, of AML links, the microwave links, and pretty quickly all of those links went down because uh, they were so much better. You know, you could find enough lasers to do that, and then the long cascades with fiber backbone started falling in place. And as we, you know, started looking more and more as to how we were going to grow bandwidth and we were buying more, the price started coming down. And then, you know, the concept of, you know, fiber deeper, you know, they, they went through all these permutations. Well, like somewhere in there you moved from Fabry Perot to yeah, DFB. Yeah, DFB, you know, yeah. DFB lasers, again, were a little bit more expensive, but they were a lot more stable and worked better. Uh, but my favorite term, the erbium doped fiber amplifier. Fiber amplifiers <laughs> came out, erbium doped. Yeah. All those things, you know, 15, 50 nanometer lasers right, right. started coming out. So the, the industry, there was a lot of buzz around there. There was. And, this huge chapter. Um, yeah, and we were buying, uh, you know, at the time, we, we were buying more fiber cable than, than anybody in the world. I mean, that's how big we were growing because... Right. We were in that big phase of upgrades. You know, everybody was going from these 330 megahertz, 450 megahertz plants to 550, you know, or 750 is ultimately by the time the big push came, everybody was building those types of plants. Uh, and you really needed fiber optics. And we were buying a lot of, you know, cable, we were buying a lot of lasers, and it just, you know, kept driving the cost down where you could put them you know, shorter and shorter cascades and, and it evolved over from, you know, these fiber backbone kind of uh, applications into what everybody now calls hybrid fiber coax right. or HFC. So you were, I think it, well, in today's in a common language when you're talking about HFC, mm -hmm. there's the concept of the 500 home node. And you were the one yes. who told me like, do you know why it's a 500 home node? It's like you drew a circle. Can you tell that story? Like a, um, with common house spacing, if you look in the middle of a circle, it's a thousand. You, know, well, you we, can say we it better than I'm trying well, to. Well, ours became around this, you know, mythical 500 <laughs> home pads. Uh, no, for, you know, for a variety of reasons. Uh, the, but primarily what we were trying to do is, you know, we were trying to find this sweet spot yeah, of where you should Far enough, to, but not too far. Yeah, you, you didn't want to do fiber, you know, you wanted to do fiber to the home, but you couldn't afford to. So we got around to about a three, four amp kind of cascade. And if you go try to do three or four amp cascade in the kind of densities of, of urban markets, you end up with about a 500 home pass, you know, area. But it, it really depends on density. Some of them were 300, some of them are 1,000. It was this is no... Uh, you know, really magic. It was how do you build, uh, uh, you know, a three or four amp cascade, you know, where we thought was a good place for the optical uh, contribution with the amplifier contribution. Uh, and, and more importantly, uh, or, or sometimes we forget about it, is uh, we were starting to do two-way stuff. So right. as you had these longer cascades, all that stuff would funnel back as you build these shorter ones you actually got two-way performance that was much better. So all these things kind of came together. But, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, one day here was the, you know, the slab of 
from from the mountain of all the rules about HFC. Right. It, it, it was a, a evolution that got us there into, you know, where we really start building uh, most of our plants. The next step after after we built, you know, upgraded all our plants, got this capacity. Uh, we actually, you know, my my next job was actually converters. I worked on advanced analog converters. You know, the first, you know, guide converters where we put program guides in them. Um, where Mike Hayashi would say, that's when our lives started going to hell. Uh, well, that's when we started. Like, <laughs> because of so software became a big part of it. it software yeah. became a bigger part of it yeah. there. Uh, but so we built these, you know, you know again, the capacity. You know, now we had to go get new converters and because we had to Fill it up. Yeah, and we had to pay for all of these upgrades we did. So we, we started doing uh, uh, the converters. And the other thing that really was happening at that point in time, too, was uh, impulse pay-per-view because right. two-way was working better. So we did impulse pay-per-view and, you know, we started, you know, making money that way. Um, and, you know, we spent some time in, in Queens. We built a gig plant, you know. That. Uh, and we called it Quantum, you know, one of our, another one of our code names. Uh, I think I have, still have was my little the, statue of it. Was, uh, you know, a gig plant. And what we did was we did near pay-per-view where we just ran the same movie with Maybe like 10 minutes. or 15 minutes start times. And we start figuring out people bought more of that stuff. You made it more convenient. People bought more of it. Yeah. Um, and the convenience of it. So made them buy more because they could just buy it. So those things led us to start thinking, you know, what if people just get the movie whenever they want to, which was, you know, could we do video on demand, which was a concept that we started thinking about. And uh, that's what started leading us to the thoughts around the full service network was, hey, you know, if we could, you know, really do video on demand um, and, you know, hey, maybe we can do some interactive applications and all these other things. How would that work? Uh, but at the time, you know, again, we were still analog. So, the, you know, we had to move to, you know, this new technology that was coming around, you know, MPEG and digital. Compression. Yeah. Uh, and compression because, you know, even with all of the bandwidth we had, uh, you couldn't do everybody their own movies you know, that way. So full service network was, you know, yeah, an RFP that went out and said, hey, we would like to, you know, move to digital. We want to do video on demand. We want to do interactive applications. And um, so, yeah, I, I wrote a, you know, a, a pretty small RFP uh, at the time. And what does that mean? It was only 50 pages? Oh, and I was much shorter than that. Because <laughs> I wrote it. <laughs> and as I said, but you wanted to leave it in open school, I wasn't that good at English. <laughs> so, uh, no, it, it was short. It might have been 20, 25 pages. It was pretty short. But it, it was to, you know, again, to draw attention to us and get, you know, people who were smart and knew what, you know, how these things work to come and start helping us work on. And all of a sudden, that. Silicon Valley showed up. And all of a sudden, Philly, Silicon Valley showed yeah, up. Because, probably for the first time. Yeah, the because you know they had the servers. You know the uh, you know they knew how to you know. Is it Silicon Graphics? Is that what? Uh, we worked with Silicon Graphics. Yeah. Uh, you know, in Scientific Atlanta, but we talked to. I mean, we talked to Microsoft and Sun and, and everybody at the time. Again, it, it was 
it was a uh, you know overwhelming how many people showed up to you know the event because you know we held a little yeah, event man. where we invited the companies to come in and we got up and talked about the plant and how it would work and you know our concepts of uh, the full service network and that was you know, my and, that was my first press conference where the mainstream media showed up like CNN was there remember that the cameras when you unveiled it so that whole effort really yeah. led to what we now call today DOD. It led to the DOD. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it was, you know, right at the time before we had did digital because we didn't even have MPEG-2 and MPEG-2 transport. We had compression and it was MPEG. Oh, but I see what you're saying. It was actually MPEG stills that was our, our movie what we, that we did on the VOD side of it. Uh, and we only did it for VOD. I mean, the, the video, the linear video was still uh, through our set top. Uh, you know, and it was a set top on top of this other big box that right. did all of the, uh, you know, the software for video on demand and the interactive applications and all the things we wanted to try. It was really this test bed again to see what what it took to to deliver those services and yeah, and to get the industry and the rest of the world interested in investing and building products for cable. So. And then after that, was that when Pegasus? Pegasus, that was your digital set-top That was the next phase after full-service network. So after we did the full-service network, you know, we took all of the things we learned and and we wrote another RFP, (laughs) Pegasus. Right. And what I remember Uh, about that one was you came came out. That one was much thicker. (laughs) That one was much thicker. And you came out later to market, frankly, than TCI or some of the other operators. So, So what... I don't care about why you're late, but what were you looking for that was different than what was available? Well, the it, I, I have my own version of why I think okay. we were different. Go ahead. We were first, we were better, but that's okay. But <laughs> no, the um, we had learned a lot between quantum and full service network, and the things that we thought were more important than what was existing today. With you know, at the time was the Motorola DigiCypher product was. Uh, we were very big believers in two-way and trying to get the video on the man and interactivity and these other things. Uh, and uh, what the digital products at the time were more, for, you know, in my opinion, they were more about bandwidth expansion, getting more channels only. They didn't really have all of the, Features. you know, the capabilities of the two-way network or and. Uh, and the memory in them that we wanted so we could download applications, all those things. Those were the things that we thought were more important. Uh, So that's why we did our own version of uh, uh, Pegasus and and, uh, and our RFP. It it really emphasized that. We wanted a platform that we could start building off on for the future, not just, you know, another set top to give us more channels. Last question. What impact do you think the cable industry has had on our society worldwide? Um, I, I think we've had such a huge impact on, on the world. Uh, you think about the, think about the things we've spawned in, in cable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, 24 know, hour news. Which all of the programming and entertainment. Yeah. We, we created this bandwidth, and uh, through that creation, 
you know, programming exploded because there weren't, you know, there was never that much programming until we created this bandwidth and everybody, you know, started filling it up. So now you have all these niche programming and, and you know, advertising, you know, came and insertion came in that localization. Uh, and then you get to things like the internet. I mean, broadband. without the broadband, I mean, you know, we were still, you know, we're doing dial-up, you know, AOL, and CompuServe, things like that, dial-up. And, and yeah, by that time, it went to 56K modems, but <laughs> but you're still doing dial-up to get information, uh, you know, and here comes cable along, you know, we, we place these huge bets on um, broadband and, and DOCSIS and, you know, we start delivering this always on high speed experience that, you know, really just drove, you know, in, in my opinion, drove the dot com era. I mean, all of those people who come out uh, and use the I power them, of the I internet. I call them broadband natives. Yeah. They, they, they all us. grew up, yeah. you know, uh, because of this creation that, that cable did. Um, so, yeah, yeah, this impacts huge. I mean, if if we had awaited for that to evolve, you know, by other ways, it could have been, it, it would have slowed that down. I mean, we, we accelerated that. Uh, and to this day, we keep, you know, making it faster. I mean, now there's video over that to all these devices. I mean, we're doing Wi-Fi now and uh, all the ways we're, you know, this we're connecting with our customers and getting our products and services there. And, and not just ours, it's everybody's, you know, this is like the, you know, the broadband highway that everybody's using now. Uh, uh, I might have one more question. And you can't play the I'm retired card because you're less than six weeks yeah. retired. But um, if you had to architect... No, you can't do that. If you had to architect, if you were the architect of the industry's future right now, what would be the top couple things? What were the top couple things on your mind before you rewired? Um, I... But that's a tough one. Uh, yeah, it's a tough one. But I, I think right now, what I would say, um, and and I think there's I think there's multiple things where I think we aren't done with, and we've got to keep moving on. Uh, uh, the first one is uh, mobility. Mm -hmm. I, I think is is one where I, I I still think we've got a lot to do there. I mean, we started building. You know our you know these vast Wi-Fi networks outside of the home, uh, and I think we need to find a way uh, where we can take advantage of of, uh, of our you know ability to deliver you know our products and other people's products when you're not in your home. We still are tied to homes, and I, I think we, we we need a mobile play. You don't realize how much you need the cloud until you can't get to it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I think the Wi-Fi strategy and all that's going to grow. And uh, and at some point, I think you know, you know, we, we do need to do something a little bit bigger than that, or or keep growing and getting more capacity on Wi-Fi and using that way. But yeah, people aren't going to be tethered forever anymore. You know, it's just just not the way these devices work. Um, what about fiber to the home? I I think there's going to be another. You know upgrade cycle. Uh, as I said earlier, the plant's pretty old. Um, it's still working well, but, you know, at, at some point, you know, age catches up with you and you've got to go rebuild the stuff. Do you think uh, there's a way to do it success-based that won't make Wall Street freak out? 
Um, sure. It's easy to say when you don't have to go figure that part of it out. Yeah. I actually think um, there is, but it's a no, long-term I, I, play. I, it's a long-term play. It, it, it is one of these where, and, and internally we've, we've said this too, is, uh, you know, we have to rebuild stuff all the time because storms come through, right, the age of the plant comes through, we build extension. You know, we needed, a, we, you know, now that we have, you know, IP, you know, the ability to deliver our products over IP is the right time now to make those same kind of, you know, bets and investments and go evangelize that story about fiber uh, and come up with all of the right products that help us do that. And then, you know, we'll start building it organically in small ways uh, as we did with, uh, you know, the fiber backbone through HFC and eventually, yeah, over time, yeah, you'll rebuild the whole plant. Uh, and sometimes you'll, you'll may be forced to by a competitor like Google or someone comes in, you got to go do something and you, you know, you, at some point you make that bet. Uh, I think it's going to happen there. Um, Any others? The, the other one where I think we still have a lot of uh, work to do is in our, our OSS, BSS, our operational support and billing, you know, business support systems, you know, what people call billing and all of the care stuff. Uh, you know, we are, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm always amazed when I, you know, go, to, you know, visit our sites and, you know, and sit with CSRs and, you know, do technician ride with how much they can do with the, you know, the tools we give them, which right now, you know, are, are lacking. And we've got to do a lot more because if we are going to be this, you know, broadband highway and support all of these devices and all these things that, you know, we talk about, um, that whole care operation side, you know, you need the right tools to go do that uh, uh, in the operational side and on the, you know, you know, the billing systems and that business support systems, you know, we need better ways to, you know, commoditize all of this stuff, you know, to monetize it, I'm sorry. Um, you know, we, we know how to build subscriptions pretty well. <laughs> you know, we, we need better cash register in that, that sense where I can, you know, charge people by time or, you know, capacity or speed and all these things. I mean, you know, you, you need that, those kind of support things in place. So I think that's going to have to happen if we really are going to, uh, you know, become, you know, the, you know the, the company that, you know, 10 years from now is still on top and, you know, and customers are coming to us and, you know, spending as much money every month. We're going to have to find those better ways to, you know, take care of them with you know, our, our OSS tools and uh, better ways to charge them. Yeah, right. <laughs> the billing. So those would be my big ones. Leslie Ellis is one of Cable's leading technology journalists and advisors. She got her start writing manuals for an advertising insertion technology company and quickly graduated to writing and editing for top industry publications CED and Multichannel News and for analyst and publisher Paul Kagan. Today, as president of Ellis Edits, she is in high demand moderating panels, speaking at conferences, and continuously writing about the always changing and complex world of cable technology in a way that makes it easy for everyone to understand. So everybody has a story about how they fell into the industry, and mine involves volleyball. Yeah. What's yours? Well, tell me yours first. 
I was refereeing a volleyball match, <laughs> and one of the players said, "Hey, you did a great job doing that. Do you have a Do you have a graduate degree?" And there I was, ATC. Who? Oh, okay. Picachos. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, mine was uh, far simpler than that. I was I had gotten out of college. I was dating this guy who worked for a company that sold all of the, the things you needed at the time to build a cable system. And this was in the heyday of all the big builds. And so that company, which was called Jerry Kahn Associates, had a sister company called Telecommunication Products Corp, TPC. And they were early pioneers in the landscape of ad insertion equipment. Wow. And so they needed somebody to come in and write their hardware and software manuals for this stuff. And so this guy was dating, was like, you should go take that job. I'm like, I don't know anything about that. It's like, you're a good writer. Everybody tells you you're a good writer. You can do it. Go, do it, do it. So I did. And here I still am. So you started an ad insertion. I did, yeah. And then, then you moved on to the magazine business. Well, so getting back to ad insertion, I also would go then and install the equipment, like to the wonderful, oh. the smaller operators that are literally in the field where you have to, you know, you show up at the small head end and you practically push a cow out of the way, although that never actually happened to me. <laughs> and then you get in there and it's like these, you know, these big three quarter inch Sony VTRs and I'm muscling them in the door and they're like, who are you with little lady? Just me. And I'm pulling subcarrier audio cables down. And cause that was back in the days when you would hear, it would, when the, the television show went to commercial, you'd hear that and then and the, the, the local yes. ad would switch in. So it was uh -huh. in those in those days. So that was fun. It was fun. I met lots of wonderful people. And But then you did go on to the magazine business, to the CED magazine. To C C right. Communications Engineering right. and Design, yes. And and tell me how you got So that there's job. two stories. So I had always as a child wanted to live in the great state of Colorado, ah. which is where CED, at the time when, when I moved out here in 1990, there was like 17 or 18 cable companies headquartered here. This is the cable capital of the United States, you know. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, back to get back to the very beginning, my parents divorced when I was super young. And so the normal for me was that dad would come pick us up and take us somewhere for a couple weeks every year. And one year I was like seven or eight, he comes and picks up my brother and I in an RV filled with recliners. Lazy, and Lazy boy. Lazy boy recliners. Oh, and his parents, my paternal grandparents, which was like, yeah road trip so we were going to drive from pennsylvania to yellowstone and ultimately drop these recliners office in billings montana and so we're somewhere on that journey and i'm in the back of the rv all the way back in a recliner tipped back looking out the back window it was one of those perfect colorado blue sky days like this the sky was the color of your shirt and these beautiful white perfect clouds and like dad where are we right now? And he said, Colorado, honey. And I said, I'm going to live here someday. So when I learned that, you know, CED was looking for a managing editor and it was in Colorado, I'm like, oh, oh, I'm interested. And so I had already had, had a relationship with them because this little company that made ad insertion equipment, I was also in charge of buying the ad space in the magazines. So one night we all went out to dinner, Roger Brown and Rob Stewart and a few other people. And, you know, we all were about the same age and we were telling stories about things and I said this is I told him that story because it's mm -hmm. a good one you know things you think are normal when you're eight <laughs> lazy boy <laughs> you set the intention early yeah and I said I, I want to live here someday so if anything ever opens up I'm your man and it did and so they I was out here for a two-week install in Thornton and started interviewing with with Roger and Rob and ultimately got that job uh-huh anything more about that job interview How did it, well so this is when you like 
you just you learn whether or not you're pushy or just really really want great something. Great salesperson. Yeah, really want something. But I had had two or three interviews with them, and it, you know we all got along great. We were friends. And so it was like the third interview. It was a Friday. I had the weekend to find an apartment, and then I had to go back to Pennsylvania. So I'm like, okay. So I think this all is going really well, um, and I really want this job. Could you hire me? Like, could you hire me during this meeting so that I, because I only have this weekend to find an apartment. And they're like, uh, they look at each other like, uh, okay, okay. And they hired me. So they took a big risk on me. I didn't have a journalism degree. I don't have a double E. You know, I have a BSBA with emphasis on computer science, which was not really science. It was very different at the time. So that was that. That's how I got here. That's great. I talked my way into the job. Uh, And still doing that, I I imagine. (laughs) Well, you you know, like, I love the work and I still love the work. And so it was good for everybody, I think. Good. And Roger Brown was a great mentor of yours, wasn't he? Mine and many other people, yeah. yeah. So he he died in 2005 of melanoma cancer. And it was a huge blow to many of us because he was very young. But yeah, he was that guy who you'd go into his office and he would put his, like, he would put his things away and look at you and have a conversation. He never multitasked. And, you know, he was the guy that we would walk around the trade shows and there was one instance where we were looking at some new amplifier development, hot, very hot at the time, Jana. <laughs> and I said something like, well, what makes it different than the way it was before? And he's like, don't you worry your pretty little head about it. And Roger went off on this guy like, I'm like, wow, I have, I feel like I have a big brother in this industry. And I did. And he was, yeah, we miss Roger very much. Many people do. Yes, says. they do. Right. He's a huge following. So your first NCTA show or your first cable show yeah. was in 1990. Mm-hmm. What was that like? What was so that it was like a, at your first show? Yeah, there was like one week on the job. Oh. And they're like, come on, we're going. We have to write the, we have to do a daily. Like, what's a daily? What's the thing they slide under people's hotel room doors at the show? Oh, okay. So we get there and Rogers are divvying up what tech, tech sessions were happening here and who was having a press conference. And so he's like, okay, Leslie, here's your worksheet for today and go. Okay, so, but then what do I do? Like, what 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 happens? And he's like, go take really good notes and come back and come back. You know, we have to go to press at around five, so come back and you need, I need you to write these things up as little items for tomorrow's daily. Like, okay, got it. So I go to the first one and it's like this dark room with this engineer standing <laughs> in the front of the room talking about. I have no idea what he was talking about, and the room the conditions were like I had eaten and it was like. Oh, was starting to fall like, feel like I was going to fall asleep. So I thought, okay, you know how to stay awake. Take, you know how to take really good notes. And I cracked right. out my portable computer, which was, you know, at the time they were like 35 pounds. They're more like luggable. Right. And I cracked it open and started doing the, the notes thing. And, you know, have I told you about the hyper-listening thing that happens with verbatim no. notes? No, what's that? So it, 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 I just learned this over the years because I still take notes this way. But there, a connection happens between your fingers, your ears, and your brain such that you can't not focus even if you want to. Like your brain will not let you get to, oh, what should I get for dinner tonight? Oh, I need to make an appointment for, to take the dog to the vet. You're so locked into that what that person is saying that you're, you, you're just totally focused on it. So I love that part because I'm very easily distracted. So, anyway, so I went in and started taking verbatim notes and then was able to go back to the press room and look at the notes and pick through it and find a way, find the lead and write a little couple pieces for the next day's daily. And I loved it. It was 
it was really fun. It still is. Now that your court reporting. Early yeah, days. that's what Mom remember. Dime right, a Page. Right. That's where that came right. back. And yeah. Dime a Page right. came back in, and you're hyper in, and you change that into hyper listening. Yeah, I still do. That's neat. It's that's great. Neat. It's a great skill. Now you told me earlier when we were talking about some things that you you had a great story you told me about Jim Chittick's. Oh, can you? Can you? Yes. Well, I mean, what happens when you don't have the ability to take verbatim notes is you use the reporter's notebook, a little skin with it seen the thing on the top mm-hmm. and so I had to interview Jim Chittix about something and I had such a platonic but a crush on him because the that year right around that time he had been named CED man of the year and mm-hmm. you know he has that very statuesque way of speaking and his pause uses the pause very well and I was kind of petrified to interview him but you know it's my assignment so I go and talk to him and I'm kind of mesmerized by his speech and everything and I'm writing and I think I'm writing and I think I'm writing and I get back to the person and my notes say and the most important thing is that was it that was it so it's kind of it's kind of a problem <laughs> <laughs> that's my one of many Jim Chittick stories but I also have the first uh, yeah please tell me the, the, post, the, the while you were out remember the pink while you were out messages uh-huh. one day I came back from lunch I, think and I still I, have those it, gotcha. well, so one day I came back from lunch and there was I, Leslie, while you're out, Jim Chittick's called like for me, so I framed it. I still have it. It's not pink anymore. It has faded over the years, but I still have the first while you're out phone message I ever got from Jim Chittick's. That's great. Yeah. And you also worked for Paul Kagan. I did. Well, that was that yeah. after the CED. CED or? and then multi-channel news, Multi- which is where okay. I learned news writing and okay. also very fun. And then wanted to learn how to do financial analysis in that whole side of the world. So I was lucky to be picked up by Paul Kagan, who I think is one of the industry's greatest storytellers of all time and a lovely, lovely man. Great. And then you started your own company. Right. I started Ellis, that, Ellis um, Edits. Ellis Edits. Mm-hmm. Yes. E-E. Okay. Um, I started that, I don't know, like, I think this year, is, I found out from LinkedIn that this year is my 15th anniversary of that. Start getting all these congratulations, congratulations! Oh, thank you. I had forgotten, but it was right around this time in uh, whatever year that was, ninety nine, okay. two thousand. And, wh- and what do you do at Ellis Edits? Well, it started out that I wanted to do I'm, fifteen years ago. Fifteen years ago, my my rules of engagement, and I'm sorry, I'm going to say a curse word now, but my rules of engagement were interesting work for people who aren't assholes. And you know, you try to stay true to that usually you fall down on the interesting work part because you come, become friends with everyone and they need you to do things that aren't always interesting. But I wanted to do that. I wanted to um, help people to understand things that, are, that can be ridiculously complicated and wanted them to understand technology even if they didn't have as much interest as, a, as an engineer. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where I live. That's what I do. So, so I started out with a column and write, still writing for CED. And you know, I went through my actual Rolodex and picked out the cards of the people who I had really enjoyed working with over, over the years and called them and said, I'm on my own now. I'm, this is what I want to do. Can I, is there any way I can, do you need anything like that? And the, the first one was Ray Katz at Bear Stearns. He and I had always helped each other because he under, didn't understand some of the stuff in tech and I didn't understand the stuff of Wall Street. And so I called him and he was like, I think that's a great idea. And so he was my first really big client and for a long time until the end of them. That was very sad day. And uh, you've also authored books. Yep. I did. How, how many? Um, I think, I don't 
know, three or four. They're all, they're not like book books. They're not like, you know, what's the one we just read? Bill Bryson or, you know, actual books, but they are kind of like textbooks. I've done two illustrated dictionaries with the fabulous Stuart Schley. Mm, Stuart Schley. There's no, hardly, there's few people that are more fun to work with than Stuart Schley. We also did a, a field guide to broadband. So it's those kind of like illustrated dictionaries of tech stuff that were fun to do. I think that's the only books I've written. Maybe there's more, I don't know. Okay. Um, and you, you are also a speech writer, both for yourself, yeah. and we'll talk about your public speaking later, but both for yourself and for others. And so yeah. allow me to tell the, <laughs> the Jim Blackley story, okay. from, just, just from this year, because yeah. it's so great. It, uh, so uh, Jim Blackley won a Vanguard Award. The CTO this, of uh, Charter, yes. Yes. And he got up and started to speak and did the usual, uh, I'm, I'm afraid, petrified. I'm petrified of, of, of public speaking. Gripping. And, and yeah. it turned out to be the funniest speech. It, it was, was great. even upstage Josh Sapan. Um, and I was listening to it so and I thought, oh yeah, indeed. And I thought, hmm, that, that just has a hint of Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> so I texted you and said, did you have anything to do with Blackley's speech? And you said, texted me back and said, yep, <laughs> I helped him write it. He and wrote it. I just kind of added some special sauce. But, but yeah. you are an, a, a fabulous speech writer. That, well, that was thank a you. great that was, story. That was big fun. Um, and you're also a much sought after public speaker. Uh, and in fact, to the point where when the NCTA show schedule comes out, I, I kind of groan inwardly <laughs> if I'm if I have my panel at the same time as yours because like oh not again um, but you, like how many panels have you moderated Leslie okay so somebody asked me that last year and the number as of the middle of last year was like over two hundred but you know moderating one on one Q and A's video interviews all of that's it's up there it's yeah up there. yeah you're you I like doing it. Well, well, yeah. So, what tips do you have for me on? on what, oh, what are your about good, moderating? Good I moderating definitely, tips. Like how much time you have. Okay. So, first of all, people who say I'm just the moderator should be removed from that position immediately because you know a panel that has a, a weak moderator, it, it's it, it's a it's a role that's important to the conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, never read someone's bio. You're just wasting time. Mm -hmm. Everyone has the bio in their books. Mm -hmm. If someone's talking too much tell them like Harry you're talking too much okay you have to stop now or stop yeah stop. you taught me that one stop you're talking too much you need to let somebody else talk those are three you want more no that's me go where the no. conversation is going the, right you know have your questions make sure they're really good questions and then if somebody goes somewhere else go with them because they might they might be even more interesting than your really interesting question good tips thank you you're welcome and you and you have some uh, rock star folks that you emulate when you moderate, right? I think who, whose styles do I try to incorporate? I do. Um, yes, thank you for redoing that question <laughs> right. for me. <laughs> Charlie Rose. Okay. Ellen, Gener Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, John Stewart. And uh, 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 Terry Gross from Fresh Air on NPR. Mm. I'm also a big fan now of, what's her name, the funniest lady on television, uh, Amy Schumer. Oh. National Treasure. 
mm-hmm. Jimmy Fallon. So I, I kind of cleave towards funny things, but also I also really like how Charlie and Terry interview. Like they just have a way of making people feel comfortable and they do the research such that they know what they're, they know they lead the conversation gently and, and I think masterfully. Um, so masterfully. I, mean, I study interviewing. I think it's a, it's an art and a science and a talent that. Is, and, and I would say that you've mastered it too. I, I'm trying. Yeah, it's great. And uh, you also write, and I think you mentioned it before, you write a very popular column for the industry called Translation, Please. Yes. Which is now in its more or less 15th year. Right, right. Do you have a, do you have a favorite column? I don't know that I have a favorite column. I have a favorite topic, which is, um, and all of the CTOs or technology people watching this who know me know what it is. It's the upstream path. So the upstream path of the any cable system is 5% or less of their total available capacity, which it used to be not a big deal because there's not much, you click your mouse to go get a web page, but the bulk of it is the web page coming back. You know, you're part of a telephone call coming out of your house is not a big deal because voice is small. But now when you think about, oh, I'm gonna attach my webcam to, my assistant Sarah did this last year. She attached her webcam through her Wi-Fi to her chicken incubator so that we could all watch the chickens hatch. That's video, that's big, and it's coming out of the upstream path. So I spend a lot of time fussing and fretting and worrying about the state of the cable industry's upstream path to the point where the CTOs are like, give it a rest, okay? Let it go, let it go. But you, what you do with all of these is you, you make the cable technology understandable for the lay person. Yeah, I, try, I say it as a, a for people with less of a natural interest than engineers. That's what I try to do. Like, here's what it is. Here's why it matters. Here's what doesn't matter. Here's how much it costs. Whatever the theme is of that. Well, I'll look out for your next upstream <laughs> upstream path. <laughs> I've done um, like so many of them. It's, it's kind of- And they're all online now too. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. Translation-please.com. So you um, also, just change change gears just a little bit. You're, you are a prolific volunteer and fundraiser, both in the industry and out of the industry. Mm-hmm. You want to talk to me about a couple of those fundraising projects? I don't know how I got, I don't know how I fell into fundraising, but I, I found out like some, not to, Colleen Abdullah would say, here's what I bring to the table, fundraising, rather mm-hmm. than saying, here's what I'm good at. But I don't know, I just found it, I, I started with um, the Avon breast cancer stuff and in, in the in two years, I was with the, uh, Save second base team for for several several years, and mm-hmm. I uh, in the last year that they had it, I was personally number one in the Rocky Mountain region, and the team was number two. And then when Roger died, he had four kids that were about to be of college age, and so I put together a cable team called Run for Roger, and we raised ten thousand dollars for each of the four kids for their college, which really helped them a lot. And so on. that's that's amazing. Yeah. That's great. I'm doing one right now called uh, Healthy Bee, Be Healthy, that is to raise money for a uh, beekeeping associate, or like a the biggest convention for beekeepers west of the Mississippi later in, well, it's early October. Great. Um, now, and can you talk a little bit about what you've done to bring women into the technical side of the industry? Oh, yeah. Um, you, you've, you've been a speaker, you've been a fundraiser, you've volunteered. Yeah. So it's mostly through, um, the, there's a wonderful group of women in the industry who are all recipients of the um, SCTE and WICT annual 
Technology Woman of the Year. And Nomi Bergman is one of them. And every year she organizes this dinner at the SCTE and every year it gets one person bigger. And we talk, we talk, 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 talk about how to fix the top, the top and the bottom of the problem. So the bottom of the problem is still on our watch, fewer and fewer young girls are interested in the sciences and technology. And so we're trying to, to work that, which I can tell you about. And then on the top side is there's, you know, fewer, well, the numbers show that if you have more of a 50-50 blend of women and men on boards of directors, you have better financial results, but it's still kind of an uphill battle. So mm-hmm. as a group of women, we try to work the top and the bottom of those two problems now, actively. You tell me a little more about what the programs are for, for bringing people into the bottom. Yeah, so the, the one I'm most involved with was one that um, Daniel Howard of SCTE and Sharita Cesar, Cesar, Cesar sorry, Sharita, and I, uh, dreamed up at one of the national shows like three or four years ago, we were saying like, okay, we're starting to do a better job of an, as an industry at throwing money at this, this entity called FIRST. And I can never remember what it stands for, but it's the robotics program that's now global for high school students and uh-huh. to get them involved and interested in, in the sciences and technology. So she's, she's like, what if we, I mean, we can give them money, but every cable operator is in market. We have feet on the street. Like, why are we not helping with people too. So we've started this this entity that was still very new, but it's called Cable First. And the idea of it is to get more of the industry in more markets with their own people in the teams, mentoring the kids, like the engineering side, doing the actual build, and then the rest of it. I mean, they all have a website, they need to be doing fundraising, they need to do marketing, business plan, all that stuff still needs to happen mm-hmm. as part of that experience. So we're trying to build that out. And I believe that you're instrumental in the huge success of the Rocky Mountain Tech It Out project. And that's a national model for WICT. Well, I, I can't take credit for that. That was Rebecca Rusk Lim's baby. She's the one who took it and said, why are we just doing like an hour? Let's do all day. Let's blow it out. And so she set the bar really high. Uh-huh. And we've tried to match her at really high every year since. So last year we had it at a new place. It was we had to program all the screens around the wall, and it was it was quite a to-do. It's fun. Yeah. But great opportunity, and, and there are high school students that come to that, yep. as well as young women in the industry. Yep. So yep. we're reaching out not only to women already in the industry, but, yep, but to the next generation. Women in, yes, next, next generation, women in high school, who we hope will be into yeah. the cable product. Right. Exactly. Um, Denver loves cable. I still have my button that says Denver Loves Cable, and you were instrumental in that, Well, that was another one with Rebecca and Marwan, and let's see if I can remember, and Don Dolcinos and Marwan, uh, Mike Hayashi, and me. We, we, you know, Denver Cable used to be a really big thing. Like, I told you, 16 or 17 companies headquartered here, and then one by one, consolidation, they started, everyone kind of moved east, and so... One, it was like the SCTE was here one year and we wanted to have a party, but we couldn't figure out how to do it. So we're like, well, let's, we formed a little company called Denver Loves Cable LLC. And that way we were able to find, find sponsorships and throw a cable party like the good old days with like 10 or so sponsors. And it was great. So we still have this, this informal group called Denver Loves Cable that is the core Denver cable community. Now, you have a tech lab in your house, I know. Because at the I've office, read, yeah. I've, yeah, at, the at office. your office, right. Not at your house, at your office. And I've read your columns about that. And mm-hmm. what a great service 
for those of us not in the technology sector. Um, how did you get that tech lab started? It was, it's, well, here's why. I'm, I'm come from a long line of gifted warriors. And you know, every few years in this industry, starting with microwave, something comes along, microwave. It's gonna kill the cable industry. Then it was telco video, it's gonna kill the cable industry. Then it was satellite, it's gonna kill the cable industry. Oh my God, every time it happens, like, oh no, it's gonna, it's gonna kill again. So then this over the top video started to happen. Uh -huh. And you didn't need a microwave antenna in your back bedroom. And you didn't need you know, to, a satellite dish. You didn't need telco, whatever. You could go buy these things, they're like 99 bucks. So my assistant, Sarah, the lovely Sarah Dirksy, and I went out and actually before that, another friend's daughter who was interning Kirsten Hull, Nicholas helped me build it. Sarah runs it. And the idea was, well, let's just see. Is it, how, how, is it really better? Is, it, is this going to kill the cable industry? And that's, we've been looking at this stuff for four or five years now. And, you know, last year with the Google Chromecast, the, the Kindle Fire Stick, uh, you know, there's such a profusion now of 50 to $99 streaming sticks mm -hmm. that we kind of declared the hardware side of it game over. And we're shifting our focuses now onto the Internet of Things. And we're looking at it because it's such a hypey category of you know, things that are internet connected mm -hmm. and speaking to each other. That we decided that we would look at it through two prisms. One is, um, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Some really funny ones like the selfie sombrero. And then the other ones that are <laughs> wait, like, wait, okay. wait, selfie sombrero? Oh yeah, it's this bright pink sparkly huge sombrero that was designed for Lady Gaga. And it has a drop down bright spark. Sp <laughs> bright pink sparkly thing that holds an Acer tablet so that you, so it's already attached to your hat. Oh. Clever. And then we also look at things that are plausible. Like, oh, that, I, I, would, I would do that. That's how we were slicing it. Okay. It's fun. It, and it's, again, great, great for your tech translation work. Yeah, it is. It all feeds together. Right. So what, what do you see as a lasting legacy of the cable industry? Or the, or the legacy of the cable industry? Well, you know, you and I have talked about this before because you're very involved with the people that are on the customer care side of things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you have your cable life and then you have your non-cable life. And usually the people in your non-cable life hate cable in some way, right? We, li we are living in the era of... Unfortunately. Right. And so I'm so tired of it. But so the nice thing is the work I'm doing now inside some of the operators, I truly believe like it would be very hard to be convinced me otherwise that it's going to get a lot better. Thank God. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's going to be the light. I hope that the legacy is that, you know, in some period of time, 10, 20 years, people don't, or maybe they remember laughingly how bad it used to be, mm -hmm. but that our industry is, gets much, much better at care and user experience. It just, it seems like it's inevitable based on, based on the work I see happening by so many people, but the, the chasm between the two is still very large. And disappointed. I, I would I would agree with you, Leslie. And, and I know a lot of people are working hard, really to, hard to make that, and they mean it. Really it's not hard. just a job. It's right. Yeah. What What do you see as uh, cable's impact on society, or what what impact has cable had on society? Well, that's a, that's I mean, a big question. It me. is, and I'll, I'll hone in on one side of it. I okay. think that the the biggest thing that's happened since I've been in cable is high-speed data slash broadband. So when that happens, I mean, Doug put in the first cable modem in the United States in 1994 or something like that. And at that time, this is at Viacom Cable, they, they were doing focus groups and people were saying things like, um, 
and especially people who were finally able to use their broadband connection to speak to their family in halfway around the globe, you know, saying things like, you'll have to pry it out of my dead fingers. And mm-hmm. so I think that that broadband pervasive connectivity, which has given rise to so many other, you know, industries and companies, Netflix wouldn't exist without broadband. Right. You know, so right. I think that's, that's the big one for me. Okay. Um, Let's talk about you personally and legacy. What what would you? I know you're only fifty, so you have lots you, lots Jill. of time left. Uh, but but uh, what would you like your legacy to be in the cable industry? That's a hard question. I mean, I guess I I, will, I want people to know that I help I help people to understand complicated stuff. I don't know. Like oh, uh-huh. she made me understand. Like one time, Glenn Britt, dearly departed Glenn Britt, told me that he had gone into a meeting after having read one of my columns and they had this, it was, the meeting was about it, how to expand their VOD offering and how many qualm modulators they were gonna need. And he was like, I had just read your article. Thank God, I understood what was happening in the meeting. Like, oh, that's awesome. That, that kind of thing. However you put that in a few words, that's what I want my legacy to be. Okay. What, what is it that you think that uh, people in the general public, Jane Q public, what, what do they not know about the cable? You know what astounds me the most is that people don't know that cable operators have to pay the programmers for the content. Like when all this the scuffles happen, like we're taking, you know, X channel off the air. It's, it's like when you talk to taxi cab drivers, sometimes they have no idea that. They, so that's one. The uh, that the care is going to get better is another, mm-hmm. and that you know people often uh, people from outside of the industry who want to be part of the industry kind of snark on us that we're too chummy and too clubby. That's not um, intentional. That's because the operators never have competed with one another. They, they chased, you know, fr- franchises, right. state by city by city, town by town. And so, as a be- as a direct result, especially on the engineering side, um, they they tend like for instance, they split the load of the work. So, like Cablevision went first with network DVR. Uh-huh. Comcast went first with uh, Doxis Three. Time Warner f- went first with Switch Digital Video. And so they and they and they come together, and because they're not competitors, they say. Well, here's what worked with that, and here's what didn't work, and here's what. So they're able to share the load of what needs to be learned and experienced and, and put into action. I think that's pretty cool, and I yes. hope it stays that way. Mm-hmm. Make uh, more innovation that way. Like many budding technologists, much of Michael Joy's childhood was spent taking things apart and putting them back together. At 21, he became a stockbroker, but as the computer era dawned, his love of technology took over. He fixed computers and became a consultant, eventually connecting with Warner Communications to work on the team that developed the compact disc. Joining Time Warner Cable in 1994 after two years of consulting for them, LaJoy rose to become the company's executive vice president and chief technology officer and led teams that worked on everything from interactive program guides to the Roadrunner high-speed internet service to network DVRs to early VOD and IP telephony. He is currently co-owner of technology consultancy Gen C 2.0. You, you meet people like Glenn Britt and Joe Collins and Jim Chittix. Um, what, what year is this and what does cable look, what does Time Warner Cable look like at that point? This is probably 92, late 92, I guess. Um, and uh, cable is still, uh, is still long, long cascades of amplifiers. Hybrid fiber coax has not been deployed. Lewis Williamson has proved that it works. Lewis is actually, I don't know, people don't recognize Lewis for this, but 
He is the guy that invented hybrid fiber coax. He's the guy that first said, I can transmit television signals over a piece of glass and translate it into an electrical signal at a node and deliver it, you know? And uh, he's the guy that came up with that architecture, which is, uh, I can't, uh, I can't uh, talk about modern cable television without mentioning Lewis Williamson. Lewis, the, that architecture that he came up with is, is the foundation for the extensibility and the robustness of everything that we do in cable. The fact that he came up with that and reinvented how you build a cable plant is what, is what actually gave birth to digital television, gave birth to on-demand, gave birth to telephony and, and high-speed data and all the stuff that we do today. Sure. Um, so this is 92, uh, and uh, it was a, uh, as I said, this guy Jeff Holmes inserted himself in the cable company's desire to do, uh, to, to roll out hybrid fiber coax and to demonstrate what you could do with a, you know, a high-end two-way plant using HFC. And so uh, I got inserted into this program and went to Denver uh, in the uh, old ATC headquarters right there on, on 160 Inverness down at Dry Creek across from Jones. Which I understand that's a building that's supposed to get torn down here pretty soon. And that's where I met those guys, Dave Pangris, and I met mm -hmm. uh, Jim Ludington and Lewis and Scott Wattawa and Don Gall and uh, Javon. And uh, that was the crew, along with Hayashi on the periphery, telling us we were all doing it wrong. Uh, that was the crew that kind of came up with this overall architecture and figured out, okay, how could you actually do TCPIP over a cable plant using hybrid fiber coax? How could you layer it on top of a transport? We used ATM at that time, which was supposed to be the e-ticket, which has now been kind of retired. But uh, uh, that was the crew that put it together and did all the vendor selection and then oversaw the construction of it. And what did what did Time Warner Cable look like? I mean, uh, how many uh, states was it in? How many employees did it have? Uh, what did what did customers when they turned on their television see at that point? You know, at that point, uh, they were probably seeing about fifty channels of television okay. uh, in most places, and um, and the uh, it was all you know not even standard definition because it wasn't digital it was ntsc it was analog right. tv right and uh and so yeah i think we were mostly 550 plant might maybe not i guess we were still there was a lot of 360 that we were still you know we were we hadn't even started significantly on the upgrades then uh and so we were still all you know cascades of coax with up to 60 amplifiers in cascade so if you were close to the head end, you, you had a nice experience. If you were a long way away, it wasn't so nice. Uh, but uh, I guess we were in probably about 45 cities then. Okay. You know, about 45 cities. Every single city had its own earth station and a bunch of dishes outside and the downlink facilities and all that stuff, you know. Uh, and uh, customers were probably about seven, eight million, I guess. And when you got into cable, um, what did people say to you when you told them, uh, oh, I'm going to work for this cable company? At, th at that point, what, what did people say? What, were their, what was their reaction? Was it a still kind of a pioneering business or was it a pretty established business and you knew you were making a good decision? 
You know, uh, it's funny. When I got into technology, I made the decision in 1980 to get out of you know, finance and into mm -hmm. technology. And at the time I set a goal and I said, you know what, I, my goal was that I really wanted to work on the leading edge of technology with the greatest technologists that I could find. And at that time, I didn't realize what the, in, what cable, what the cable industry was. Uh, you know, I knew what cable television was, I was a subscriber. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't, I don't think it was uh, as big a deal. You know, this is before the 94 Act. This is, sure. you know, I mean, uh, I think cable it was still, you know, broadly enjoyed, but still in its in its Infants. early yeah. early growth and its heyday. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it had been. I think it had been built mostly everywhere. Most of the big cities had been franchised. So, um, but no, I I didn't know what I was getting into. I was still a consultant at this point in time, and um, I had a. I actually had partners. We had. We had other customers, you know, and, and at the time I had, I don't know, 14 people working for Warner Records and, and my partners were doing business with other folks. So we, uh, I, I just thought I was, you know. It was just another customer. This was another, this was a very good customer. <coughs> you know, they, at the time they were represented mm -hmm. about, you know, 40% of our business. And so it was a good customer. Hmm. Okay. Um, when did you make the move to full-time working at uh, Time Warner Cable? It was about 10 years later or so? No, it was January 3rd, 1994. Oh, okay. So it was two years after that. And uh, this was, uh, we had now, we had, we were just about, we were still a year away from launching the full service network in Orlando, Florida. Right. And, uh, but we were, boy, we were full swing into it. And uh, I was managing a lot of people as a consultant, I was managing a lot of Time Warner people wow. uh, and uh, and overseeing uh, a significant spend. And uh, you know, I kind of went to myself. You know, this doesn't really. I'm I'm like you know I'm I'm selling you hardware and I'm authorizing payment to some of my employees and managing a bunch of yours and you know managing the money for you know at the time it seemed like a lot of money. It was just a few million dollars, but. Uh, I said, this doesn't feel right to me. And they said, yeah, you know what? You probably should become an employee. And I said, well, yeah, well, I have this, I'm not so sure I want to become an employee, but my partners were in a position, they, they were happy, actually happy to see me go, wrote me a check, and uh, so I became an employee in 94. <laughs> okay. Um, tell me uh, something about... Uh, what cable technology looked like in 94 and some of the, and, and you know, you talked about um, uh, the, uh, the system in Orlando or the, uh, the, the project in Orlando. Um, tell me what, what uh, some of the early things were that you worked on as a full-time employee for Time Warner Cable. Well, uh, I worked mostly, I focused on a lot of the applications that we were building, the two-way applications that we were building for uh, the full service network. Right. Um, and, um, then in 90, 95, I guess, I mean, I had a development group in Burbank and uh, we were building a lot of stuff. And we were also starting to do a lot of early HTML work because by this time now we're looking at, you know, launching a high-speed data service. And uh, so we were working on a number of things, mostly software related. Uh, and then um, we decided that, the company decided that we were going to shut down that internal, but we were also working on an interactive program guide. So mm. the interactive, the first interactive program guide, um, 
that we launched on the digital television systems uh, that came in 96, 97, a lot of that stuff uh, were came out of my shop, these guys. And we, we did a lot of the early design work and a lot of the early prototyping stuff. And then we shut that group down, actually Panasonic, or Pioneer, excuse me, Pioneer. Uh, we sold a lot of that a lot of that to Pioneer, and they took over quite a bit of the folk, quite a few of the folk, and then they built the first uh, guide, which then um, it's now uh, it's now still out there. That the some of those guys are still around. I think they're not working for for uh, for uh, Rovi, I guess. Um, so you know, um, so that was like the early stuff, and then in ninety five, I'm pretty sure it was ninety five. We shut that group down because the cable company, you know, they just said, you know what, we're not gonna, we're not gonna spend this kind of money every year. Full service network, interesting, um, yeah. but it's not something that we're not gonna take that particular methodology and roll it everywhere. We had to reinvent it and turn right. it into something that we could, you know, affordably roll everywhere, which became what we called the Pegasus Project. Okay. Um, and uh, then I just kind of rolled around for a year and a half, and I looked at interesting stuff. And I looked at a lot of high-speed data stuff and got involved with IP telephony. Uh, so packet cable was something sure. that I started at Cable Labs. I was uh, actually the first RFP for packet cable was something that I wrote over a weekend at my coffee table. And, uh, and that was the first thing that was published for packet cable to, to start launching telephone. You know, I, I'd like to, to, to sort of stop at this point and, and ask you, what was the feeling um, when you were doing this work? For example, I remember when when the concept of, of, of your cable company being your phone company, your cable company um, providing this, this thing called the internet to you. And a lot of people said, well, gee, I, I don't want my cable company doing those things. But you were in the middle of it. You were right in the weeds. Um, and... Was was your feeling that oh this is going to happen or was it you know I'm working on this and eh, maybe it will happen maybe cable will be taking over phone or uh, offering phone and and being a, an, an internet provider whatever that is at the time right I mean it was it was pretty pie in the sky or not were you were you totally sure that this was the way we were going. I want to get the, you know, just for the, you know, you I were was, in the middle of I it. was rabidly in the yeah. camp that said, this is something we absolutely have yes. to do. Yeah. I wanted to put, I wanted to put, you know, high-speed data modems in set-top boxes. I wanted to put G.711 codecs for voice in set-top boxes, in the first digital set-top boxes. I said, guys, we got to do this. You right. know, this is something that's coming. Where you, this is, this is going to be here. And uh, so, uh, you know, and I, I give a lot of credit to uh, to Glenn and yes. uh, and Carl and Joe too for putting up with him. Jerry then Jerry let us do it, but Jerry didn't fund it. Uh, Joe and Carl, or Glenn and Carl, actually right. went and raised the funding for high speed data. They went out and and found partners to throw in the money to allow us to build uh, the initial Roadrunner, and um, and that was uh, you know it's one of the things that I absolutely treasure about the cable industry is the is the risk-taking and the pioneering and the guys that just have this vision and say you know what this is gonna this is gonna be something that's gonna bring huge value this is gonna change the planet and we're gonna go do this and then go take the risk to do it it is uh, quintessentially American 
uh, and it's uh, and it's something that is that has always been deep in the bones of Time Warner and Time Warner Cable. Really, it's one of the things that you know I kind of lament Time Warner Cable, the brand going away. You know, I mean, it's the nature of cable. You know, cable you you uh, you know you, you build it, you borrow a bunch of money on it, you grow it, and then you sell it. That's how cable works, and everybody goes home to go figure out what they're going to do next. And uh, so I understand it's the nature of the beast, but I was always on the other side. I was always on the buying side. I'm, you know, I'm very pleased with the, the career was great. Cable, you know, as Garrett Morris used to say, cable been very, very good to me. Yeah, but I, I guess, I guess the, you know, you, you kind of said it, but I, I'd like to just dig a little bit more. Um, was it, and, and I think I think you kind of answered it, was it a, a bet that, that, that Glenn Britt and, and Joe Collins and you made or was it did you feel it was a sure thing i mean that that you know because now here we are sitting in the digital age everybody's using their computers their phones and most young people i would think or anybody doesn't really think uh, anything was any different ever that it wasn't a wasn't a gee well will this happen or not i mean when you when glenn was raising the money and things like that um, at cocktail parties, did people, when you were talking to them, did they say, oh, it sounds interesting, but I don't know. But you were hard, definitely in the camp, right? Can hard you to explain. That? It was yeah. hard to explain yeah. to people, and you couldn't yeah. really, I mean, at, at this time, you know, we were spending literally billions of dollars on the infrastructure and the, and the signaling protocols to support this business. Right. When no one even knew what the hell it was. Very, right. very few people knew what it was. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, the power of it was, was, I mean, when you saw it work, right? so mm -hmm. first of all, you know, I, you gotta remember I was back in the, I was a 300 baud guy, right? I had a, I had a modem, a dial up modem in my, in my Apple II and spent times, you know, spent hours and hours on a VAX and a PDP 11, you know, screwing around with text files. So, I mean, I, I was, uh, this is back in the late 70s, you know, so I was, I was, I was an absolute acolyte yes. for connectivity, right? Oh, I could see that. And uh, so when you actually saw what happened when you could put broadband against that and you could start to see mm -hmm. how images would change and how quickly this thing, you said, oh my gosh, this is, there's no way this is, this is going to take the world by storm. It is amazing how um, how it how now it just feels like air. Yes. You know, everybody just kind of just assumes that you know, just like you don't even, you don't even think of, you don't think about the fact that we're all breathing the right. same air. But the internet connectivity is just it's just there. It's always been there. You know, well, not true, not true. It it came from it came from huge investment, a lot of risk taking, and a lot of development uh, born on the backs of folks really in the cable industry. I mean, right. telephony was there, right. you know, the guys in the, you know, the, the guys in the, in the, uh, the chip business and, and the CPU business and the routing and everything, those guys, the Cisco's, the Intel's, certainly they took huge risks as well. Uh, but um, yeah, and I think actually, if you look at it, if you were paying attention at that time and you understand things like Moore's law and Butter's law, mm -hmm. and you just do the simple math, and you say that this is going to get twice as fast for half as much every 18 months, and you add that up, you go, wow, this is going to be really, really different, really, really fast. 
Yeah. So right. I was absolutely convinced. Okay. Um, VOD. Did it, did, um, tell me about your involvement with that, with VOD. So early on, we did, first we did VOD in Orlando. Right. Right. And uh, we had about 100 titles. We had actually, we had 99 titles. And we tried to add 100 titles and the whole thing broke and we couldn't figure out why. Uh, and it was because, uh, and actually I poured through the, I poured through the software, the, the code to find out why was this thing breaking. It was because somebody had hard coded the value for how many titles you could have to the maximum limit of 99. We had to go change that. So uh, anyway, uh, so that was where we first did it. And um, then, then we started trying to figure out, okay, how could you, could you really do this? And at the time, the server farm to store those 100 movies, and it was only made available to 4,000 people. The server farm to store those 100 movies and to manage that stuff was bigger than this room at the time. And now, today, yeah. that would fit in one rack unit this high, you know, like this, a little pizza box. And you could throw not just 100 movies in there, you could put thousands and thousands of movies in there. So uh, that was, the, that was the, first, the first incarnation of it. Um, and then in 90, in the late 90s, 98, I guess, um, we, were, we, we made the decision, okay, we're going to go do this. And one of the things that, that I did, I think, that was a little different than other engineers and technologists was I would actually build the spreadsheets and do the business models and say, look, this is, this is what you have to assume. If you assume you can sell this many movies a month and you can charge this amount of money for it and you license it for this price, this is the revenue and the, and the margin you can get out of it, which then says, you know, if you want an IRR of X, you can spend this much money on the capital. We're there. Let's go spend this money. And um, I did the same thing for telephony. I built a business model for early te telephony. And then, so we did the first kind of system-wide deployments of it in Tampa uh, and in Austin, yeah, and in and in Hawaii, uh, and uh, it was boy, I'll tell you, it was very, very different than it is now. How how so? Well, <coughs> we had we actually had to uh, we had to build multiple. So in Tampa, for instance, um, I think we had eighty. I want to say we had eighty different duplicates of the movies that were available sprinkled around the city because we didn't have enough bandwidth in the plant right, uh, and, right. and because the technology wasn't there to be able to serve it all from one single hard disk farm. So we, and so, and that was okay. So, okay, you built these things and you just kind of, you know, you just kind of populated it out. Um, and, but the, the problem that you had then was it took hours and hours and hours to make changes to it because you had to percolate this stuff all through that distributed server farm. Uh, and then over time, we, we pulled that back. We made the decision, I guess, in 99 to go, uh, to go company-wide. And we, uh, I think uh, Glenn and Joe came to me and said, we want to go roll this out everywhere. Said, what it'll take. And I said, well, you know, I, I need X number of millions of dollars in, in two years. And they said, okay, you got a year and half as much. And I said, okay, <laughs> all right, we'll do it. And so then we just put together the plan. And it's interesting. You know how cable works because you can actually put together an atomic plan. You can say, you can say, what do I have to do in one hub? What do I have to do in one hub? And then if I figure that out, 
then I can say, okay, if I were to do that, then okay, if I start to if I start to perk that back, what do I have to do in one system? And if I build that out, then I can. So you can do this stuff atomically, and if I can do the economics, and if I can do the blocking and tackling for a single hub, then I can figure it out for the whole company. And that's basically what we did. And we pulled it off. We got it done. We turned it on in nine months, and 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 it uh, it worked. There were some several sleepless nights, but it all worked. Okay. Um, let's go on to another project, uh, DVR and network DVR. What was your experience with those? So DVR was, uh, um, I'll forget, I, uh, we first saw it, this, this guy, uh, we first saw a version of a DVR uh, out in Silicon Valley. And um, it was this guy wearing he was wearing these Bermuda shorts and a t-shirt, white socks and sandals. And he says, come look at this, you know, and I said, okay. So we went and went and looked at that. And, uh, and I said, gee, that looks pretty interesting. And, um, and we figured, you know, that's gonna, that's gonna fly. And this is just Chidix and Hayashi and myself. And I really have to give the credit to uh, Hayashi who, who took the risk personally. Uh, and because we knew that, we knew that, that DVR time shifting, right? Time shifting television was uh, was a very powerful thing. And at this thing, I think replay TV was out there at this time. Mm. And uh, I, I don't know whether, I mean, there were a couple of early tries at it. Uh, and, uh, but, but we really knew that given the right model, uh, that this could take off. Given the right model, given the right offer at the right price to consumers. So we're gonna, Give the, we'll give you the box. You don't have to pay $600 or $900 for the box. And, and oh, by the way, it's just a few bucks extra a month and you get this wonderful thing compared to, and by the way, similar to what, when we, lo when we rolled out high-speed data, we were offering a residential service of a megabit per second uh, for 40 bucks a month, 45 bucks a month. At the time, if you wanted to get a T1 line from the telephone company, which was one and a half megabits a second, you paid $3,000 a month. So just the relative scale. And we knew that the economics worked for us at $45. And we saw what a T1 looked like, but you know that was something at the time that an entire office building would right. share. Right. And we were gonna give that bandwidth to one household. So when you, look at, when you look at the power of the distributed network, the fact that that's already there and that that signaling all works and the customer base is there, the kinds of things that you know you can make work financially, the kinds of things that you know you can roll out and that customers will respond to. Uh, the, you know, it, kind of the world's your oyster, you know. And so DVR, we knew it was going to work. And uh, at the time, we had, we had uh, I would say, between, between Hayashi and I and some others that were early advocates of it, we had some difficulties in actually getting the company to pull the trigger. And uh, Hayashi just told Michael Harney at Scientific Atlanta says, you know what, I don't care. Make 50,000 of them, we're gonna buy them. We'll buy them, trust me. And so Harney went at Scientific Atlanta and he made them. And sure enough, we bought them. We first rolled them out in Rochester, Rochester, New York. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. All right, so um, one of the names that we, we, uh, we've talked about or mentioned in passing was Carl Rossetti. And I know Carl has a kind of a a deep connection to you, Mike. Uh, explain a little bit about your relationship with Carl and his his mentorship and his tank driving as well. Well, uh, you know, Carl is a uh, 
Carl's a unique guy, and and he he was somebody I think that that recognized the potential in me. He used to see he used to I, I saw him mentor a lot of people over the years, uh, men and women, and um, and he gave you the room to he gave you the room to grow, uh, and to make your own mistakes and learn. Uh, but he was also there, you know, with a little bit of guidance, and uh, and he, uh, you know, he was always, he was the guy that uh, that gave me the opportunities, and he, I think he saw in me uh, the ability to go complete this stuff, uh, and he, you know, and I think he was a big, he was a big supporter. He was also, he was the driving force behind digital television, behind uh, high speed data, the driving force behind uh, that DVRs, you know, I mean, from a financial perspective. You know, Carl, Carl really, Joe and Glenn really trusted Carl's gut business sense. And, uh, and I relied on Carl for, you know, that little bit of guidance that, that I kind of needed. And he was, he was always there for me. You wanted to talk about Kevin Letty too. Yeah, Kevin. Kevin was somebody else that, uh, you know, that when I, when, I first, when I first started coming around, Kevin was, was a very senior guy, a lot of really, really, really deep experience in the cable industry. He's done a lot of jobs. Um, but very deliberate thinker and somebody that thinks that that goes through the scenarios and figures out the the, the ticks and the tacks, and you know it just used to. I think I, I think I drove him nuts a little bit because I would generally say you know yeah it's gonna you know and somebody would come up with an idea and I'd say well yeah okay this take this much money take this long, and then he would go and do the analysis and come back with the answer and it was this much money and this long or within five percent or so. Drive, drive him crazy, but he did the he did the deep analysis, and he always had he always had the uh, the passion for the business that that allowed him to. You, you got to give him a lot of credit. He was he was a huge proponent of DVR. Um, he worked long, hard hours with the NCTA and the FCC in dealing with a lot of the the cable card stuff, and the, you know that was he, he. He was a big contributor to the industry, and I've really, really enjoyed my collaboration with him over the years. So you you brought up um, a name has come up a couple of times here, Mike Hayashi, and I know your partners now. Um, there was a profile of you and Mike done uh, earlier this year by a good friend of ours, uh, Mike Roebuck, and he begins the article about both you and Mike being the person CEDs persons of the year. Um, he starts by saying, Lewis and Clark, Hope and Crosby, Cheech and Chong, Batman and Robin, Penn and Teller, LaJoy and Hayashi. No, no pressure there at all, right? I mean, being compared to those people. <laughs> no, no uh, you know, um, it's been, uh, boy, it's been a wonderful, uh, it's really been a wonderful thing to know Mike Hayashi and to work with Mike Hayashi. He is absolutely brilliant. The kind of energy that he brings to things, uh, and he's, um, you know, and he's just straight. He's just straight and true, and you know, he's not always uh, gentle. Uh, but uh, I, there's a few vendors I think that would probably roll their eyes at that statement. Uh, but yeah, it, it's been great knowing Mike and working with Mike. He's been. We call. We say. Uh, we say it's. You get twice the mics. No waiting. And of course, I, I should say that that uh, another Mike, Mike Roebuck, who wrote this piece that we were talking about, calls you Cable's Mike and Mike, and, and that's a, a reference to the uh, ESPN hosts on the on the radio, Mike uh, Golick and Mike Greenberg. Uh, 
Tell me uh, about, because one of the things in this article, it's so wonderful, uh, Mike Hayashi talks about your, uh, what is it, slap and tickle management style? I, I, I don't think I have that right. There's a tickle in there, but I don't know if it's slap and tickle. Is it slap and tickle? It is slap, it's and, slap tickle. and tickle. Yeah. Okay, tell us about slap and tickle. That's another uh, great pairing. Right? I, um, I don't know. I guess I have a personal style where I can be a little gruff, uh, but I, I never want people to feel bad. And so if I am gruff with you, I always want to make you feel good afterwards, right? And there was one particular meeting with a guy, Bill Helms, um, who's also another brilliant engineer. And, uh, and I, you know, I, asked, I asked Bill a question, and I, you know, I said, so what's your opinion on that? And he says, well... Trying to figure out whether I'm being slapped or tickled, and so that's where <laughs> that's where that came from—the slap and tickle management style. I, you know, I don't know. Um, it's not something that I do. Uh, it's something that I do intentionally. Uh, it's not a style that I try to create. Um, but I can be um, I can be gruff. I can be pushy, and uh, and yet at the same time, I don't want people to be afraid of me. I don't want I don't want to be a you know, uh, I almost said a bad word, uh, but I, I don't want to be a uh, difficult person to, to work with. You know, I want everyone to feel, I want people to feel like they've got, you know, they're they're in an environment that's creative and supportive and nurturing, and and you need that stuff uh, to you know to make good soup. And uh, and so yeah, maybe there's a little slap and tickle. Some people got to be nudged every now and then. Um, since we're talking about people skills and things like that, I know one of the things that you mentioned to us in the, in the pre-interview was the collegiality of the technology side of cable and the cooperation. And, and clearly you've talked about all these people today, and I know there are a lot more that you want to mention. Um, talk a little bit about how much the collegiality and the cooperation on the tech side has meant to you. I know it's a big, big part of your life. You know, it's been uh, phenomenal, and it's not something that you find in any other industry. And it's the really the brilliance. And I don't know whether John Malone was thinking about this when he created Cable Labs, um, but I wouldn't put it past him. You know, mm. talk about long sight. Yeah. And uh, you know, I don't know John very well. I've met him a few times, um, and uh, of the you know of the cable giants, he's one of the few that I don't know really well. Uh, but wow, um, you know, and Cable Labs, it's the, it's, it's the, I don't know, I guess it's a consortium that we love to hate because in some ways it's a pain in the neck and, and you know, we, they, they kind of gets in our ways. But the, the forum that it gives the industry to work together and collaborate and share ideas in a way that you just don't, you, you don't have in other industries, you know, you don't see... You don't see Intel and AMD getting together to figure out how to make the next right. how to make the next great chip design. It just doesn't happen, you know, because they're they are really competing. It's another, you know, it's another kind of uh, uh, it, it's a it, it is a, an affect or or it's vestigial from the way that local franchising happened, and that and that it really doesn't make sense. You can't you can't really make a profit overbuilding with cable plant. And so you can really only have one operator there. Uh, and I do believe that's true. Uh, and so because of that, cable companies don't really compete with each other. Right. So we have the ability to, to collaborate together. And believe it or not, it's a, it is a, an aspect of antitrust law, which is, uh, 
which allows for this, allows for, hey, companies that would normally, that normally shouldn't collaborate because of the risk of collusion, if it's something for technical purposes that is that actually betters the entire industry and betters the you know for the for the betterment of the world really, mm-hmm. uh, then it's okay and uh, and that's kind of what Cable Labs gives us and that that's yielded a, a real collegiality and a um, you know a cooperation and a friendly competition among the technologists right so guys like you know David Fellows uh, you know guys like uh, like oh, Tony Werner I mean I've known Tony for. For a long, long time, and he and I have worked together uh, a long time. And we, and you know, kind of Wilt Hildebrand is another one yes. out there at uh, Cablevision. And Wilt, uh, Wilt is somebody that really never, he he really never kind of dove into the whole Cable Labs thing. But still, you know, the fact that uh, you know, I always knew that I could call Wilt and say, "Hey, man, what 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 are you doing with this? And you know, what should we do?" And I've got this issue. Have you run into this? And you know, and, and you know that he would call me and do the same thing. Uh, I remember we were trying to do a. Um, we wanted to do a company, uh, like a like a town meeting, and we knew we could do it at all the cable systems where we out there where our employees were. The corporate headquarters was in Stamford, Connecticut, right. and we didn't have plant there, and so we were going to go. Really, I remember the woman that was doing. HR at the time was going to go hire a satellite truck and do all this stuff. And I, Glenn came to me and said, do we really have to do this? And I said, no, we don't really have to do this. And I called Wilt and I said, Wilt, can you give me a channel? And he said, yeah, no problem. And he gave me a channel. We did a downlink and, you know, it took 15 minutes and there it was for free instead of spending 150 grand. So it's that kind of stuff that, that you know, where we all kind of work together. It's all based on similar but different technology. Um, and uh, that collaboration has been really, it's yielded great results for the industry and for our customers. Because I think we've made, you've seen such dynamic change and growth in the things that, that are offered. It wouldn't have happened without that kind of collaboration. You know, one thing Glenn Britt said at, at his retirement was that, and you've kind of echoed it, uh, um, was that so much of what we do today and so much of what we take for granted today technologically has its roots in, in the cable industry. And his, his comment was that we should tell this story a bit louder and a bit prouder, I guess, where he's... Agree? Um, I absolutely agree that without the risks of guys like uh, Glenn Britt and Carl Rossetti and Brian Roberts and Ralph, John Malone, uh, and, you know, it's really, it's the... I hate to give those guys more credit than the technologists, but they deserve it because they're the ones that actually took the financial risk and actually right. stood up there and convinced people, hey, this is how I'm going to spend this money. This is going to work, right? Uh, it's easy when, you know, when somebody else just kind of gives me the checkbook. Uh, that's It makes that job a lot easier. But uh, Intel wouldn't be what it is. Microsoft wouldn't be what it is. Google wouldn't, wouldn't exist. You know, Facebook, what the heck would be? People wouldn't be pushing photos around of each other if you didn't have broadband. Right? Think about all that stuff. Medicine wouldn't be what it is. Radiology wouldn't be what it is. Um, You know, the, (laughs) yes, the cable industry and the risks that we have taken uh, completely is is the complete underpinning for the technological revolution that we see today. And, you know, largely the, the technology, the advancement in TCPIP, the advancement in compute technology, advancement in storage, the advancement in networking, um, is the greatest American export. 
it happens here first. It does. It happens here first, and then it gets exported. Um, and uh, the uh, and that that has been, you know, Cisco. For heaven's sake, I mean, we were. I was at Time Warner Cable for several years. I was John Chambers' biggest customer. You know, for several years we were spending, you know, one point two billion dollars a year with uh, with Cisco, mm -hmm. and um, the willingness to take that kind of risk, uh, and uh, and to go and to make that investment and to place that bet. So you look at the, the what that funds, and then what the other things that they could build, and then the fact that they're buying the Broadcom chips to do all that stuff, and the Intel chips, and the, the funding that that happens, and the jobs that are created. I mean, the cable industry, does, what, has 300,000 jobs. But if you add up all the other industries that support this industry, and all the jobs that we create, it's millions of jobs. Millions of jobs. It's a, it's a fabulous industry. We should crow about it a lot louder. I agree. You've just heard Technology Innovation. We hope you'll join us again soon. Until then, this is Luke Woodruff for the Cable Center, the nonprofit educational organization that helps support and fuel the ongoing legacy of the cable industry's innovations and influence. Thank you for listening. <laughs>